Chapter Ten of The Girl from Farris's by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter Ten: Rats Desert. For a long month, Ogden Secor lay at St. Luke's. Surgeons pulled their whiskers, glaring owl-like at the patient. The while they wondered why the deuce nature had not come to their rescue. At last, she did, to some measure at least, and he was bundled off home, weak and broken. They advised him to seek change and rest in a long ocean voyage, but he felt that his business, already long neglected, needed him. Not that he longer found the old keen delight in anticipation of strenuous copying with the storms and buffeting of the commercial world, but rather that habit drove him to it. He found conditions in a frightful muddle. No one seemed to know what had been transpiring in the office, Stickler least of all. Secor did not deem it necessary to question Sammy. It had been better for him had he done so. One of his first inquiries was for Miss Lethrop. Mr. Stickler looked at him in surprise. "'Why, I discharged her, Mr. Secor,' he said. "'You certainly cannot mean that you would have cared to continue her in our employ, after learning the reputation she bore.' "'Reputation?' repeated Secor. "'I do not quite grasp you, Mr. Stickler.' Mr. Stickler explained. It soon became evident to him that there was something radically wrong with his employer. There was a blank look of utter incomprehension upon Ogden Secor's face. "'It is odd,' he said at last, "'that I do not recall any of the incidences which you relate.' You are quite sure, Stickler? Quite sure, sir. As day succeeded day, Ogden Secor realized more and more fully what an unusual secretary Miss Lathrop had been. He no longer mentioned her to Mr. Stickler, but he missed her very much just the same. At times he recalled with a start the things that Stickler had told him about the girl's past, and then he would realize that after all it would have been impossible to have retained her. It was too bad, he thought. Too bad. Such secretaries as she were scarce. As to Stickler's assertion that she had connived with the cracksmen, furnishing them with the combination to the safe, Secor would not believe it. Months rolled by, September came again. Long since, Mr. Stickler had realized that his chief's memory was far from what it had been prior to the injuries he had received at the hands of the burglars. Ogden Secor, too, had guessed at something of the sort. He seemed to have lost his grasp. His usually alert mind was no longer equal to the emergencies that were constantly arising in his business. Not only did he find it more and more difficult to close contracts, but those that he did obtain netted him losses now instead of profits of the past. There was a leak somewhere, but Ogden Secor was not mentally fit to discover it. Matters went from bad to worse. His losses on the year's work entailed the necessity of mortgaging the bulk of his real estate holdings to complete the large public works contract in the neighboring city. Unable longer to concentrate his mind upon the work in hand, it ran completely away with him. Stickler assumed more and more the direction of it. High prices were paid for inferior materials and for large amounts that were never delivered. Where the difference went, the books of the corporation did not show, and if they had, it is doubtful if Ogden Secor's waning mentality would have been able to understand that he was being persistently and systematically betrayed and robbed. The final blow came when the engineers of the city for which the work was being done refused to accept it on the grounds that scarcely any of the material used was up to specifications. Coincidentally, Mr. Strickler resigned his position with John Secor & Co., to accept the management of a stronger competitor. An expensive lawsuit followed the refusal of the municipality, for which the work had been done, to pay the bill. In the end, Secor lost. Bankruptcy proceedings followed, and on the first of the following February, Ogden Secor found himself a ruined man, almost penniless, and broken as well in health and mentality. With the exception of a worthless and barren farm in Idaho and a few articles of clothing, he had disposed of everything he possessed in an endeavor to meet the demands of his creditors. The farm, too, would have gone with the rest had he recalled the existence of it. During the past few months of mental and nervous stress, Secor had seen but little of Sophia Wells, 
He had not felt equal to the rounds of social activity which constituted her life, nor had he found her generously sympathetic. Now that the end had come, he had sought her, hoping against hope that the ubiquitous Mr. Person would not be present. To his relief, he found Sophia Wells alone. She did not need the evidence of his tired and haggard face to realize the demand that might presently be made upon her sympathy and generosity. She had but just laid aside the noon edition of an afternoon paper in which she had perused the last of the rapidly dwindling references to a failure that had at first occupied a large part of the front pages of many editions. Sophia Wells knew at last that Ogden Secor was a hopelessly ruined man. There was but one thing to do. She must forestall him. I am glad you have come here today, Ogden, she said with a brief exchange of greetings. For almost a year now I have had a great load weighing heavily upon my shoulders. Miss Wells did not say upon her heart, and I am only sorry that I did not speak of it long ago, for I can only too well realize the motives that may now be unjustly attributed to me in pressing the subject at this time of temporary financial trouble in which you find yourself. To be quite frank, I discovered long since that my affections were surely directing themselves toward another. I should have told you at once, but I was not sure at first, and I dreaded causing you useless pain. She paused. Secor looked at her through dull eyes. It was evident that he was going to take it much harder than she had supposed. It is true that not once since his accident had he spoken to her of their engagement. There had been much in the way of sentimental exchanges between them, so that the absence of these had aroused little or no surprise in the girl's mind. She was glad now that it had been so, for it was going to make a difficult job much less difficult than it would otherwise have been. Yet it was going to be hard enough. She could see that. She wondered why he didn't say something. Finally, he coughed a slight flush mounting his pale face. I am quite sure, Sophia, he said, that I shall always be most satisfied with what brings you the greatest happiness. She noted the puzzled expression on his face, attributing it to a natural desire to learn who had supplanted him in her affections. I feel, she explained, that we are not exactly suited to one another. Our ideals are not the same. You do not find interest in what interests me most, and so it seemed to me, as there may never be any deep-rooted common interest between us, that we should soon be most unhappy together. The puzzled expression seemed to have been growing upon the handsome face of Mr. Ogden Secor. Yes, he breathed. I fear that you are right. Mr. Person, on the contrary, went on Miss Wells, feels precisely as I do upon the subjects that are closest to my heart. They are the same that are closest to his. In fact, Ogden, I'm going to ask you to release me from my engagement to you. Involuntarily, Ogden Secor's mouth opened, but whether in surprise or because of a terrible shock to his love and pride, it would have been difficult to say. Miss Wells attributed it to the latter. At last he found words. My dear Sophia, he said, you know perfectly well that if you love Mr. Person, I shall be the last person on earth to stand in the way of your realizing to the full every happiness that may be found at his disposal. I congratulate you, Sophia, sincerely, and I beg that you will give no further thought of me other than as a friend and a well-wisher. You are very generous, Ogden, she said, and she bade him good-bye, glad that the ordeal was so easily over. It would have been a much surprised Miss Wells could that young lady have read Ogden Secor's thoughts as he ran down the broad steps before her home and made his way to the nearest elevated station. And to think, thought he, that for over a year have been engaged to Sophia Wells without once recalling the fact. Those cracksmen most assuredly cracked something belonging to Ogden Secor beside his safe. It was with a feeling of relief and elation that he had not felt before for months that he strode along the street. Evidently, the obligation of his engagement had been weighing upon him heavily through the medium of his subconsciousness, without his having once objectively sensed, other than an inexplicable call to duty that had drawn him to Sophia Wells, when he gladly would have been elsewhere. As he walked toward the elevated, he tried to recall under what circumstances he had become engaged to Miss Wells. As he viewed the matter now, it was difficult to realize that any possible contingency could have arisen that would have caused him to look with tender affection upon the cold and calculating Sophia. The loss of his fortune affected Ogden Secor less than might have been expected. 
Possibly he did not fully realize the completeness of his financial ruin, or what it was bound to mean to him. In a way, he felt principally a certain relief from the galling pressure and annoyances of the past bitter year. No longer was he weighed with burdensome responsibilities and grave apprehensions. The worst had happened. There was no further calamity possible, at least so he thought. Vaguely, he felt that he could build up a fortune equal to that which was gone, but there was none of the old-time assurance and determination that had marked him in the past. It seemed quite impossible for him to concentrate his mind for a sufficient length of time upon the subject to formulate even the foundation of a well-considered plan. He sought out old friends upon whose business acumen he might rely with the intention of talking over his plans with them, for at last, and the first time in his life, Ogden Secor felt unequal to the task of reasoning for himself, much less deciding in any matter of importance. The first man to whom he went was the president of the bank of which Secor was still a director, and with which he had transacted the bulk of his banking business. The president was an old personal friend, a man of about Secor's own age, a member of the same clubs and the same set. Heretofore he had been wont to drop whatever had been engaging him and come into the anteroom to greet Secor whenever he had a chance to call. Today the caller waited thirty minutes before the bank president appeared. "'Well, Secor,' he said, "'what can I do for you?' Heretofore it had always been Ogden. There was an unquestionable air of haste in his manner, too, nor did he take Mr. Secor familiarly by the arm and drag him into his luxurious private office as formerly. It was just, "'Well, Secor, what can I do for you?' Those who are congenitally inefficient are prone to sensitiveness and the same is often true of men who, through illness or preposterous circumstance, find themselves temporarily unfit to cope with the stern demands of modern success-building. Supersensitiveness often begets a preternatural and almost uncanny ability to sense the secret motives underlying the acts of others. Ogden Secor had never been oversensitive. Until now he had not appreciated the fact that there could possibly be any material difference in the Ogden Secor of yesterday and the Ogden Secor of today. He had never gauged men by their bank accounts so it is not strange that he should have been unsuspecting that any might have gauged him by such a standard. The words and manner of the bank president, however, awoke him violently and painfully. For Ogden Secor was now, whatever he might have been in the past, an inefficient and accordingly a supersensitive. "'There is nothing you can do for me, Norton,' he said. "'I just dropped in for a chat. You're busy, though, and I won't detain you.' He turned to go. "'I am mighty busy today,' replied the bank president, a trifle more cordially. "'Come in again sometime, won't you?' thanks replied secor when he reached the street he found himself cold all over cold with a heart coldness with which the bleak february northeaster had nothing to do he did not venture to call upon another friend instead he dropped into a bar on la salle street and took a stiff drink of whiskey it was the first time he had done that for a longer time than he could recall the drink warmed him sending an intoxicating if artificial renewal of hope and confidence surging through him he took another there was a genial stranger drinking alone at the same bar. He commented upon the severity of the storm. Ogden Secor, friends with all the world now, entered into conversation with him. "'Wish I was back in Idaho,' remarked the stranger, "'where I can get thought out and see that the sun was doing business at the same old stand. Idaho! It awakened something in Secor's memory.' "'I thought that it was usually pretty cold there,' he said. "'Not where I come from,' replied the stranger. "'I got a little fruit ranch down in the southwestern corner of the state. Greatest little climate in the world, sir.' never gets anywhere as near zero, and sunshine. Why, man, you ain't got a bowing acquaintance with old soul back here. Three hundred and sixty days of sunshine out of every three hundred and sixty-five. Secord smiled. You remind me of the boosters of sunny Southern California, he laughed. Don't, said the Idahoan, raising a deprecating hand. What I'm telling you is the truth. What part of Idaho did you say you're from? asked Secor. About ten miles south of Goliath. Goliath's a division headquarters of the short line. Goliath, repeated Secor. 
Why, I've got a ranch around there somewheres myself. Took it on a trade years ago and forgot all about it. A hundred and sixty acres, I think it was. Sort of funny for a man to forget a hundred and sixty acre ranch, remarked the stranger a bit skeptically. During the following week, Ogden Secor drank a great deal more than was good for him, or for any man. Several times he met old acquaintances on the streets, ever eager now to discover changes in the attitude of former friends. He was quick to note the seeming coldness of their greetings, and the remarkable stress of unprecedented business which invariably hurried them along. After each encounter he sought the nearest bar. His mind was much occupied with thoughts of his forgotten ranch, and when a summons to his attorney's office revealed the fact that the final settlement with the creditors would leave him with several hundred dollars of unexpected wealth, he obtained an advance from them, purchased the ticket for Goliath, Idaho, and shook the grimy snow of the loop from his feet. He hoped forever. End of chapter 10